Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Dr. Bob Weathers, and happy to be back with you and happy for you to join me. You notice I brought in a more handsome counterpart today. This is Odie Martinez. Thank Hello. you, Odie, for joining me. I've asked Odie to join me because, you know, I've taught for, I don't know, about 35 years or so, and the way that I teach is an interaction. I really I like dialogue, and I was talking to our co-producers, Austin Armstrong and Franz Salvatierra, and Odie earlier, was that what would it be like to bring in more of an interactive component on this end? I know if you're watching uh, my previous podcast, you, I give exercises and we, we, we do those each, uh, each uh, time we meet. And some of you respond, but I don't actually see you and I don't engage with you like I would if I was in a class with you. One of the ironies is I was talking to Odie, I come to this podcast each week right from a group at Beginnings Treatment Center locally here. And uh, I just came from a group and I pilot this material with them. I'll take parts of the material. I don't really go through the entire you know, podcast, but I'll pick parts of it. And the groups are so, um, so interactive. There's so much, uh, there's the, it's, it's the interaction where the material kind of comes alive. So we're trying an experiment. Odie's willing to join me. Thank you, Odie. Yes, you're welcome. To see if we, can, if we can bring in a bit more of an interactive component. Now, having said that, Odie now and I would really appreciate you bringing questions, any comments, uh, for clarification, whatever you have, bring those to us, please. I'm going to ask Odie to do the same with me in real time, and I may do that with you, Odie. Sounds good. The interaction really helps it uh, come alive. I also want to mention one other thing, and there's an asterisk. This is to Austin Armstrong, is that uh, in one of our recent podcasts, somebody viewed it and uh, actually viewed several of them. And just today, reach, or actually yesterday, reached out uh, uh, to me to want to know if they could get help for their son, who's... Uh, had issues with, struggled with addiction. They're from the Eastern Seaboard. I was able to connect them up with Dr. Asan Garajadagi, who is in charge of Therapy Cable. And we're all, this this podcast is under the rubric of, uh, of uh, Therapy Cable. I just talked to Dr. G before I left beginnings today. He's made contact with this family and they're gonna be sending their son to get treatment here, mm. which will include being in groups that I lead as well as I'm part of the family program now at uh, beginnings. I'll be meeting with the families. I'll be actually meeting with the parents that I, uh, that I, talked, uh, that I wrote to uh, earlier today. Why I'm mentioning this is that if you're viewing this and you yourself have, have uh, struggled with addiction, I want you to consider reaching out for help. And there's ways of doing that. You can reach out to Beginnings Treatment Center. You can reach out to my website. I'll give you the address at the tail end today. You can write a response that will be held confidentially and ask an addiction specialist here on the Facebook group. In fact, when you share something online here, Odie knows this, I don't read your name unless you're Austin. <laughs> I don't read your name out loud. I want to respect your confidentiality. This, this whole... Um, if I have a passion around addiction and recovery, it's addressing the huge barriers to recovery that shame, personal shame, and societal stigma pose. And uh, there's plenty of us that have relapsed and died as a function of being too ashamed to get help um, or, or turning to substance in order to numb out from the shame. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, a pillar of my own commitment. And so I want to respect that here, realizing that that there's a tremendous amount of social stigma around admitting that you're an addict. Mm -hmm. There's even social stigma about admitting that you're in recovery. And if you think about it, that makes sense because if I'm in recovery, that means I was an addict mm -hmm. and that's never a compliment. And so I want to invite you as viewers, as participants to 
engage with me today, engage with me and Odie. You can write, um, you can send comments through Ask Addiction Specialists through the uh, chat function. Austin will be good to publish those. I'll respond to you. I will not uh, speak your name. If you wanna reach out for personal um, referrals or support, you can do that through my website or through Beginnings Treatment Center, which is local. And we'll find a good place for uh, you or your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife, whoever it happens to be. I also really wanna uh, uh, speak to a broader audience than just those that are in addiction. We have clients that are fully into committed recovery and this can be a way to kind of bone up on material and get booster sessions. Mm. Uh, I also know that we have a lot of loved ones of those in recovery, like the, the family I was just mentioning, that are viewing this and uh, developing tools to be able to work with, with your loved one in and around uh, their addictive behaviors. And then finally, we, work, we have uh, those in our audience that are actually working in the field of recovery. Mm. We have therapists and other recovery-oriented workers that view this. And I'd love to hear from all of you uh, and and in the spirit of having you here, Odie, yeah. if you if you all uh, will interact with me, insofar as you do that, I will respond to every single interaction. Okay. I really invite that. I wish I wish you'd just flood me with questions, and 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 get me to say, Uncle, stop, stop, it's too much. <laughs> that would be a nice problem to have. So that's the goal for today, then. Yeah, it is. It is. To, yeah, and having you here, Odie, is yeah, exactly, is to, <laughs> to strip a bit more interaction. Sounds good. Yeah, thank you. Thank You're you. Welcome. So it's good to have you guys here, and it's good to have you here, Odie. Good to be here. Thank you. As a quick review, last week we talked about the psychological roots of addiction. We focused on shame, and just as a by way of review, we talked about shame as being two sides of a coin, either a threat to my being accepted socially, getting kicked out of a group, mm. and the flip side of that is a threat to my self-esteem, which is feeling bad about myself. <clears throat> the number one trigger for relapse is stress and addiction. And the number one stressor for most individuals, this has been tallied by looking at the elevations in cortisol, which is the stress hormone. The number one elevator of cortisol is threats to social acceptance and threats to self-esteem, which is basically shame. Mm -hmm. And so there are, other, there are many other factors that go into addiction, including the biological factors, familial factors, even societal factors. I'm not ignoring those, that's just not my specialty. My specialty is focusing on what can we do to manage, reduce, eliminate as much as possible shame and stigma around addiction because they serve as barriers for people getting into help mm -hmm. and they also serve as triggers for relapse for those that got help. And so mm -hmm. that's really our focus. So last, last week when we talked about the roots of addiction, this is where we, this is where we focus. Okay. Today we're going to be talking about, I'm going to be introducing today the way out of shame, which is to say the way out of addiction. And we'll be introducing that. There's no magic bullet with this, and we'll make several passes through this, Odie. Okay. But today is a beginning pass through that. And we're going to start right away with some exercises to kind of get us in the field here. I'm going to suggest a couple of different things, strategies that I think can help reduce shame, hence provide more um, support for, for recovery. So okay. we'll start with that. So last week, we talked about shame as, as being a primary root of addiction. And our goal today is what can we do to silence shame? Mm -hmm. What can we do to silence shame? My view of it, Odie, is that shame is what silences us. Mm. Shame leads to a freeze response. If you think about the fight or flight response, we all know about the fight or flight response. Yeah. Neurobiologists now talk about a fight, flight, or freeze response. Mm. And so if you do something to scare me, I'll fight you, I'll run away, or I'll curl up in a ball. Mm. Shame is the curling up in a ball response. 
Gotcha. And so shame effectively paralyzes forward momentum. I don't move towards you. I don't move away from you. I curl up in a ball. And that works okay if I'm being uh, uh, attacked by a grizzly. What was that movie, Revenant? <laughs> Yeah, where uh, Leonardo movie. DiCaprio, he yeah. curls up in a ball as he's being mauled. It's really yeah. painful to watch that. That's a freeze <laughs> response. And uh, why that works sometimes, I don't know how that worked for him. God bless him. <laughs> I, I think how that works is that animals don't want to eat dead meat. Mm. It's, it, it's, so it's an evolutionarily designed response is that if you're dead, you may be spoiled. And if you're spoiled, you may make me sick. So I won't eat you if you're dead. Hmm. I'd rather you be fresh kill. Sorry to be so graphic about this. But no, the, so fine. the shame, the freeze response, if you think of playing possum, how a possum right. curls up, right. it's very adaptive in some circumstances. The problem is, is that around addiction and recovery, it stops us in our tracks. And shame is, in, is so vitally connected to, to addiction hmm. that it's hard not to be ashamed. So the question is, how do I shed shame how do i silence shame so that's right. really our topic today and that's why i say that shame silences us it shuts me down i won't speak to you in fact when i ask clients what do you experience when you experience shame people will say things like i look down hmm. or i want to crawl into a corner do you have a sense of that for yourself yeah i was about to mention um something this has nothing to do with addiction but it doesn't uh, have to uh, okay. we're humans here we're humans here <laughs> Addicts so, are humans as well. But yeah, I want to broaden this beyond just a narrow niche of addiction. 25% of American adults are addicted to substance right now. Hmm. That means 75% are not. Why don't we include, and I'm assuming that you're not, let's, just, let's talk to the other 75% as well today. Well, let's, uh, I'll talk uh, substance and other, because food is one, I yeah. feel. But yeah, thank uh, you. Thank you. Th yeah, the example I was going to use is I notice when uh, I play a sport. Mm -hmm. specifically uh, basketball. Yep. I notice that when I sometimes play in a league. All right. So I notice sometimes when um, the game is on, on the line, so to speak, yep. um, and I, <laughs> I go in mm -hmm. and I tend to start thinking in my mind, oh, well, yep. what if I don't do that well? Mm -hmm. You know, what if I turn over the ball to the other yep. team a bunch mm -hmm. of times? I start... I start performing poorly, pretty yes. much. Like somebody passes me the ball, I start dribbling it, and the next thing I know, the other what I think in my mind is happening mm -hmm. in reality. So you're like 100 percent. Yeah, so. it's a perfect example. 100 percent more vulnerable. I played basketball all the way through high school, then I played city league, kind of like with you, oh, all the okay. way through adulthood, until my body finally gave out on me. It was a shoulder <laughs> injury that put me out of uh, uh, city league basketball. But one of the things that was really vulnerable for me playing basketball. Mm -hmm. I loved basketball and I was good at it, and I bet you are too. But in a high stress moment, it gets dicey. And the worst for me, I wonder how this goes for you, the worst for me was free throws. It's uh, like this yeah. free throw really matters. You're on the free throw line all by yourself. There's nobody defending. And you've got to shoot this ball <laughs> just right to make the basket. All right. And there are times, I mean, on my own, I got to where I could I could make 90% of free throws on my own. Right, just, yeah. I could almost do it in the dark. Yeah. But I did it in the dark as a kid. I would just shoot. It was so much fun. I get out there. Why didn't I shoot 90% from the free throw line in the game? Is because I was scared uh, badly. And I remember times, <laughs> so embarrassing. There are times that I would actually shoot what was called an air ball. Yep. <laughs> I'd shoot, and the ball wouldn't even make it to the right, rim. There's that, or it's even worse when you go up. I had a, a friend on my team. I still remember him. We called him Iron Hand. He would get up there, and owing to this, he would shoot the ball and shoot it just like a direct 
boop, <laughs> basketball. It would hit the back or bounce off the rim. Yeah. It was like a bullet. Man. And so that that's it. that is that is the shame or that's the fear response. Okay. Shame is is really related to fear. It's mm. it's mediated in the brain, and we just talked about it. it's fear of I'll let my group my team down right. in the context yeah. of basketball, or I will suck. Mm. You know, and and that's that's a blow to self esteem, and so right. I've always envied those players. I can think of them over the years. Michael Jordan is one that comes to mind, mm, wow, where he yeah. would play. He would play sick. Yeah, you and know, in oh, finals, and you probably it saw some. Like it. it was like, yeah. in fact, he his playing was sick. <laughs> in the second meaning of yeah. sick, is that he seemed impervious. And I also thought about this with Magic Johnson. Think of different players over the years in basketball. Mm. They would play, and it was almost like when things were more dicey. They play they amazing. Pl they play even better. Yeah. It's like, how do they get beyond that? That's really what we're talking about. Yeah, right? that's. Yeah. I always wondered that too. I watched mm -hmm. videos too of interviews and how their mentality was, mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, I'm going to try that. But it's never the yeah. same when yeah. you try it yeah. on your own. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I love the analogy. Thank you, Odie. You're that's welcome. great. That's great. So what we're talking about is a human experience. It's not unique to addiction. It's particularly pointed in addiction. Because it's one thing to let down your teammates if you screw up a free throw or you right. drive and lose the ball. Right. It's another thing to have everybody that loves you reject you because you're weak, mm. defective, or broken. Yeah. In fact, I was thinking about it before I came today. It's not even. It's not only having non-addicts judge you. Mm. In my case, it was having people that were addicted judge me. Because mm. I was weak if I couldn't handle my alcohol, for example, to that group. Right. And I was weak to those that weren't that group for having indulged as much alcohol as I drank. It's like you're just kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. And so in that sense, there's a vulnerability with addiction. And then societally, addiction is, is judged more harshly than virtually every other disease. Mm. In fact, I've mentioned it in previous podcasts, but a recent study of the World Health Organization that looked at diseases across the world. Mm -hmm. We talked about it in terms of the international classification of diseases, which lists every single disease you can ever imagine, from a hangnail to autism to AIDS to mm -hmm. just think of all the diseases. Right. And they rank ordered them. This is, again, cross-cultural. Yeah. They rank ordered them in terms of social stigma. Mm -hmm. And guess what was at the very bottom? Well, you know, because we've talked about it, it was addictions. Addictions mm -hmm. were at the very bottom. And it wasn't just in the U.S., it was across the world. There's a, hmm. there's a, there's an attribution. If I'm addicted, there's something really wrong with me. Yeah. And as I say, there's something wrong with me to those that themselves might be addicted because I'm a, I'm 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 kind of a, spoiling their party. Hmm. And there's definitely something wrong to the greater part of society because one of the things that happens in addiction is that I look like I'm normal. Right. You and I can be talking, and I can just screw you over as a hmm. function of my addiction, and I'm not normal. Because addiction really knocks out the frontal cortex. Mm. And so I can actually keep talking to you, seem like I'm your friend, and do something very harmful to you. So it's particularly troubling because it's one of those things that disguises itself as normalcy. And I'm anything but normal. Mm. So I can go out and get in my car and, and, and you think, oh, Bob's good to go. And then run over three people as a function of having been drunk or, or you know, having some of the drug in my system. Right. And it's confusing and it's scary. And so it's understandable to me that people will judge it, but it's very painful for the addict because mm. who wants to come out with being an addict in that environment? Mm. Or for that matter, who wants to be in recovery because there's such shame even attached to that. So. Right, so yeah, that comes in hand with what you said about um, not being accepted. Yeah, right. yeah, thank you, yeah. thank you. In fact, let's talk about that for a second. The okay. next slide talks about a catch-22. 
Some of you will be aware of this term and some of you won't be, but let's just talk about it. I just introduced it today in the group and some of the answers were, that's where you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Mm -hmm. That's what one person said over here. <clears throat> Another person over here said, it's like a double-edged sword. And I said, that's right. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about different examples of that. The, the technical definition, I think I cut this out of like Webster or something. It's a dilemma in which there's no way out okay. because of mutually conflicting options. I have no idea what that means. But we'll put that out there. Let's just talk about some examples of it. And it's tied into the example you just gave, Odie. Okay. If shame increases my vulnerability to drug using, mm -hmm. and the research indicates this, is that if I found with alcohol or some other drug mm -hmm. that it actually helps to numb out or to mellow out my shame, mm -hmm. then my, my brain remembers that as, as a, that's, that's a very powerful self-medication bone. Right. So if I'm interacting with you and shame comes up, right. the body, the body, via the dopamine circuitry is what it is in the brain. Dopamine will kick up, which means dit, 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 red alert, and it leads to drug-seeking behavior. Hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll use, I'll relapse if I've been sober. I'll relapse, and then when I relapse, when I turn back to drugs, guess what the attending of feeling is? Especially when I come out of being high. Mm. it'll be more shame. Right. And so you get this kind of vicious cycle. It's another way to think of a catch-22. You're really damned if you do and damned if you don't. You're damned with shame. Mm. And then if you try to resolve shame by way of, in this case, substance, you'll end up being damned by that choice as well. Mm. So it's kind of temporary relief in the short term, but uh, long term, it actually is a vicious cycle. And as I've talked about before, the poor get poorer. The more right. I try to manage my shame via substance or eating or some other addictive behavior, Actually, I mean, it lead to a greater increase in shame over time, which means greater re risk for relapse. Right. Does, that, was, does that make sense? Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I was going to ask if does the shame increase as the cycle continues or does it kind of just plateau and stay the same? That's a good question. Let me just ponder that for a second. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say that it increases and I'm going to say mm -hmm. what I'm thinking with that and others can, can, can chime in if, if you have thoughts about this. Let's say that you're my brother. Or let's say that you're my son. Okay. Let's say, honestly, let's say you're my grandson. <laughs> let's, get, <laughs> let's get real about this, okay? Whatever relationship we have. Right. We'll just say father-son for right now. And so you okay. look up to me, and you know that I've been addicted to substance. Mm. You know I've been in recovery. And let's say I find out today that I've lost my job, and I come home and I'm despondent. And let's mm. say that I, op I, I bring home a whole bunch of... Uh, Let's say just beers. Let's just mm. as I start popping beers and drinking them. Right. Well, you've been with me through addiction. You've been with me with hopes and longings attached to my recovery. Right. I start drinking. It stands to reason that you're not going to be happy about that. Mm. And so there was the shame of the loss of my job. And now what I've got is I've got the loss of your support. Mm. And so that's when I think about it increasing, I think what... Um, what relapse or using does is it opens us up to increasing threats to social acceptance. You're my son. You're not accepting me. Right. And also increases my lack of self-esteem because I must not be handling my loss of job very well because the only way I can handle it is to get drunk. Hmm. And so I think there's a vicious, in that sense, it's a vicious cycle. And I would argue what you're doing is you're increasing almost the touch points for shame. Right. And so I can feel pretty good about myself in recovery. And I can soon enough turn that right around and reverse that and be into deeper doo-doo than I was before. Does that make sense yeah, as, that as makes a possible sense. response? Yeah, that's good. I think one of the virtues of self-help self programs, I'm thinking of the 12-step programs. Mm -hmm. I'm very involved in refuge recovery, which is a mindfulness-based recovery, smart recovery. 
there's a lot of resources that are available for people in recovery is that if I relapse, let's say now that you and I are, are um, in a 12-step in a support group, let's say we're in AA or NA, okay. is that it's expected that I come in and talk about relapse, and ideally you won't shame me for that. Mm -hmm. It's almost the only place where I can go where I won't be shamed. Yeah. You'll actually respect me for being honest. You'll feel sad with me, and I should feel rightfully sad, but you won't go, oh, that Bob is such a loser. And so I've been in a lot of meetings where people will talk about relapse. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm engaged in a weekly meeting in Refuge Recovery where in the last few months, one of our prize members relapsed. And I don't think there was even a speed bump in that group in terms of judgment towards him. They were just right. welcoming arms. Mm -hmm. And I know that to be true for me. And I know the others uh, to be true. And so it's almost like that group provides a an oasis or a safe sanctuary to bring that. Right. But in general, people are not going to be happy to hear that you relapsed right. if, you've been, yeah. if you've been in recovery. I'm going to ask you a question and me a question too right now. It's an exercise for all of our participants. Thank you, Austin. <laughs> I want to invite all of you in the audience to share with Bob and Odie any comments, thoughts, and questions. And I'm going to give you an exercise right now good. that I would love for you to chime in with. And here's the question. Here's the next slide. I want us to ask, and you can open it up to any kind of addictive behavior. When mm -hmm. did you resort to addictive behavior in your own life mm -hmm. as an antidote to shame? And just to think about that for a second. Odie and I'll think about that, and if you're willing, we can talk about it. It can be to substance, it can be to behavior. Virtually all of us are addicted to certain behaviors, whether it's workaholism, overeating, undereating, um, various ver versions of sexual addiction, mm -hmm. including pornography, mm -hmm. gambling, spending. Um, the list is long and really is quite endless. And so can you think of it when you've done something that you know was not good for you, you couldn't stop it, and it was in response to shame having been evoked. The example I gave was losing a job, but it could be in an interaction where you felt snubbed or hurt by somebody. Will you give yourself just a second to think about that, then Odie and I will talk about that. I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick a, a, an addictive behavior around substance, and I will talk about that, but I want to invite you to share, if you'd be willing, Odie, just Absolutely. an example that you have. And it's just to suggest that this is a human experience. It's not, it's not relegated to addiction per se, or certainly not substance right. abuse and addiction. Uh, okay, so I'll actually, I'll go, go on a deeper level here. Thank you. You're welcome. So um, it's been probably over, over a year of sobriety from porn. Good for masturbation. you. Really respect your uh, transparency and honor it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And um, so back then, I noticed mm -hmm. that one of the things was um, I was in the middle of, of being unemployed and yep. looking for work. Right. So yeah. uh, I noticed that just the stress of my yeah. now wife, um, you know, kind of bugging. Well, not bugging, but just mm -hmm. kind of getting on my case yeah. to yeah. look for work. Yeah. I noticed that as... I noticed that was a trigger okay. to resort to yeah. pornography yeah. and masturbation. So. Yeah, thank you. Bless your heart for being honest. I'm going to share, I'm going to match you in kind in terms of honesty. Really appreciate it. I said something in the group today 
Mm -hmm. I said, uh, I said, you guys know that when we share this, there was a woman in the group talked about losing her father at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And I asked her during the break, and then I brought it back to the group. I said, did we handle that in a way that's respectful of what you shared? Because what you shared mm. was sacred material. Right. And she said, yes. And I brought it back to the group. And I said, it's really key to me, you guys, if I'm going to share what I am, uh, share who I am, like you did right now, or she's going to share, or any of us, are, mm -hmm. that it be held, that it be held compassionately. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to. I said, if I knew that I came into group each week and you guys were going to judge me after group, soon enough that would dwindle down to where I wouldn't share myself anymore. Mm -hmm. And I said, it's really imperative that we create that for one another. Mm -hmm. And uh, somebody in the groups introduced me to a new term. There's a as a comment. And I'll get to that in just a second. Somebody said, Doctor Bob, we all know you're a vault. Hmm. A vault. And I said, what's a vault? I had a thing. We know that what you talk about here in terms of, of uh, this okay. material is that you're not going to go, um, you're not going to talk about it disrespectfully here and you're not going to go blabbing about it. You're not a narc. You don't gotcha. report us. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave this and go right outside. <laughs> oh, Franz, right. let me tell you about what Odie just said. Just it's not in my nature to do that. Right. We're all human. But I really appreciated that. They said you're a yeah. vault. And that's really what we're talking about is creating a, a container here that's safe. And for any of you that are viewing this, I really hope that you'll hold what I share and what Odie shared the same way as I intend to, to do the same with you. The irony is we won't get under shame if we don't go deep enough. You said, I'm going to take it deeper. Hmm. If we don't go deep enough, you remember last week we had that image of a volcano. If you go, don't go down to the source of the volcano, you'll never be able to ebb the flow of the lava. Hmm. And so bless you. Thank you, Odie. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm going to pause for a second, see what it says on the screen, and then I'm going to share uh, an example uh, myself. Sounds good. Somebody said, thanks, Bob, for sharing all this great information. It has really helped me. Thank you. Uh, thank you for saying that. It helps me to have you say that. And yeah, yeah, thank you. Bless you for joining us, and thank you. Uh, we can all use positives. You know, we can all use support especially when we're talking about shame. In mm -hmm. fact, kindness and compassion and, and loving support may be the most effective antidote to shame. If you mm -hmm. think about shame as that you don't love me, you're going to reject me, and I suck, that's the antidote, is mm -hmm. that this person is saying, Bob, you don't suck, and in fact, is embracing me. Mm -hmm. This person put two hearts up there, beating hearts. That suggests that we're cool. Yeah. <laughs> it means a lot. <laughs> I was thinking... Uh, there's no end to shame for me around this when I think about it. I was thinking all those years ago, it was six years ago when I got out of the hospital, which was to address my drug addiction. I got out and the very first night out, went on a bender with a friend of mine, and just got loaded with alcohol. Mm. Yeah. And there's lots of ways of looking at that. And there's, there's multiple interpretations. But the one that just came to me is that going to the hospital was really my hitting bottom. Mm. I was in the hospital. And only one person came to visit me. And that meant a lot of people didn't come to visit me. It was extremely painful to me. And the fact of the matter, Odie, is I felt thoroughly ashamed of being, here I am on a hospital unit with heroin addicts, meth addicts, and me addicts. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was something about that that was very leveling for me. I don't think it was an accident that I came out of the hospital. Actually, when I was driving out of the hospital, I called my friend and asked him to set up some tequilas for us. I mean, it just gives you an idea. It was thoroughly conscious, yeah. as conscious as an addict in early recovery can be, which is not that freaking conscious, yeah. but that, I mean, that totally set that up. Um, I'm sure that uh, individuals in our audience have examples of this. You're welcome to share 
whether you do or don't, it's really important that you do what Odie did thank you, or what I'm doing right now, which is own up, own up to this. What we're trying to do is get a bead on shame. Shame takes us over. It, um, it uh, hijacks our, our brains. It hijacks our being. And if we can get the lay of the land with shame, shame, I, I'm going to personify shame. Shame loves, shame breeds on shame. And addiction breeds on shame as well. And so that cycle that we were talking about, if I don't get a bead on shame, I'll soon enough be using in some addictive behavior, yeah. some addictive substance, which will only lead to further shame. We've got to somehow break that cycle. And I think we start off doing that by being honest with ourselves. I came into the room today with Austin and Franz and Odie. I'm reading a book right now recommended by Austin called Crush It. It's on... Um, uh, building a personal brand uh, uh, for the sake of digital marketing, about which I know nothing except what I've learned from Austin and this author. And he was talking about how it is that one of the central virtues of the successful business person is just to be transparent, to be honest. Mm -hmm. People can tell when you're feeding them a line of BS. And so start off by just being ruthlessly honest is that people know at least they can trust you. They may not yeah. like what they hear, but they like even less not being able to trust what they're hearing. Mm -hmm. So why not start with that? So that's where we started. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Second question that I want to uh, put out to our audience today, encourage you to share if you want to. Can you respond, uh, excuse me, can you recall responding to whatever the behavior was? In your case, it was porn and masturbation. Mm -hmm. In my case, it was going out and drinking unbelievable sums of alcohol right after getting out of a treatment center mm -hmm. for addiction, which is perverse and ironic and true. Can you recall responding to various times that's happened for you, various times, I'm only naming one instance of shame for me. Can you, can you recall responding to that behavior itself with further shame? And so I want to ask you to think about that for saying we'll think about that and then let's let's talk a, bit, a little bit about that because now we're getting into looking at that kind of vicious cycle that catch 22 of shame the thing I'm doing to resolve my shame whether it's masturbating to porn or to downing a bunch of alcohol itself leads to more of what caused me mm -hmm. to do it in the first place namely shame so just think about that can you recall responding so whatever you resorted to uh, uh, addictively, mm -hmm. can you recall responding to actually with increased shame? Mm -hmm. This is great. Thank you so much. You're this is this is exactly <laughs> what the doctor ordered. <laughs> How about if I start and the notice shares? Is that okay. Good. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can guarantee you the next morning when I woke up from my alcohol haze, it may have even taken me two days to further grasp this. I realized I can remember, I can still remember physically being so out of sorts with myself. I was messed up biologically because I was getting off of drugs and alcohol, mm -hmm. so-called. And then I had just drunk a whole bunch of alcohol, which further messed with my medications and so on. And I remember waking up and just feeling like, the worst feeling imaginable. And I think it wouldn't be a bad summary to say shame and let's just talk about it. I felt like that there were people that had hope for me, particularly my partner mm. had hope for me going into the hospital and I was too ashamed to even describe what I had done yeah. to her. And uh, um, I was talking to my daughter on the phone as I was driving from the hospital to my mm. friend's house. And you talk about shame. I'm talking to her as I'm leaving the hospital 
knowing full well that I'm getting to that house and we're going we're gonna to start drinking tequila. Mm -hmm. It's just like, there's no way that if you have any conscience at all that that's okay. And so you can only imagine the hell that I created for myself by that behavior, which was actually designed to reduce the shame. It's paradoxical, but it's true. So that's how it went for me. Oh, do you mind reflecting yeah, or sharing? Uh, absolutely. So um, pretty much um, same, same deal, you know, knowing that it was wrong what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And um, my now wife knowing that I had that issue and her asking me, um, you know, how are you doing? Right. How is it going with, right. with that? Mm -hmm. And me just kind of with a blank stare looking at her and just lying yeah, to her face. Yeah, of course, yeah. That added to it. Yeah. yeah. And then after mm -hmm. doing what I was doing, right. you know, I would, I would make these, these excuses in my head. Well, you know, I'm already doing it, right. you know, might as well just continue to do right. it. Right. So, right. um, Right. Just a, a lot of different things that mm -hmm. that would add on top of that. Yeah. Shame. Yeah. Thank oh, you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. What Rory's talking about is true for any of us with any addictive behavior is that I'll lie to you in a second. Mm -hmm. The addiction will protect will protect itself by yeah. lying about it. Mm -hmm. The way I think about it with you, Odie, I don't assume from what you said that you're a liar. I don't assume from what you said there's anything wrong with you in terms of who you really are. Mm -hmm. I don't assume the same thing about me. I actually assume I'm more judgmental of myself than I am of you. Mm -hmm. But the way I would think of addiction, I don't care if it's a behavioral addiction, you know, it's sometimes right. referred to as a process addiction or a substance addiction, is that addiction is subcortical. It's rooted in the pleasure center of the brain, which is right between our ears. Mm -hmm. And the, the problem with addiction, one of the problems with addiction is that it's not a cortical, it doesn't access the frontal cortex. Mm -hmm. And for what it does, you can look at an addict whether I'm masturbating to porn or mm -hmm. downing a bunch of alcohol and the frontal cortex becomes increasingly dark. It's mm -hmm. offline. And I'll ask my clients, I did today. I said, what does the frontal cortex go to you guys? <laughs> and they go, and one guy said, he says, it's the executive system, Dr. Bob. It's what navigates us. Another person said, it's our reasoning capacity. Another person said, it's my moral, it's my moral discernment. Mm -hmm. All of that behavior, social uh, empathy and compassion, all of that's rooted in a fully functioning frontal cortex. Mm -hmm. Cortex is just a Latin word for bark. Mm -hmm. So our brains have bark around them and on the insides is the subcortex, everything underneath the cortex. And what uh, addiction does, and it doesn't matter if it's behavioral or substance, it shuts down the cortex, the frontal cortex particularly. Mm. And so we'll do the damnedest things that violate us. Yeah. And in an addictive state, we mm -hmm. can't help but do it sometimes. Right. And then when we come out of that, for you and for me, we'll mm -hmm. feel like, crap about ourselves yeah because the frontal cortex will come back online to some extent even for i've asked clients before that are in deep addiction to heroin mm. or meth is there any part of you as you're using that's crying out don't do this this is this mm -hmm. is wrong yeah and what i'm amazed by is the majority of people in any group i leave will raise their hands yeah. it may be one percent it might be 25%. It doesn't win the day, but it doesn't go away. I'm really struck by that. And I know that experience of myself. Even when I was at the worst of my addictive behaviors, there was some part of me that knew that this was not okay. And I could not do it. Could yeah, not do exactly. it. Yeah. I, or I did not do it. That's for damn sure. Yeah. So we begin to find some means of grace in this. If we understand that what Odie's talking about or Bob's talking about is driven by the subcortex, is that's not truly who you are mm -hmm. in terms of all of you, right? nor of me. And I'm going to get to that in a second. Okay. I know somebody just registered something on the uh, screen. I want to respond to this and then we'll continue on. 
Oh, thank you for sharing. This person said it's really in sync with what Odie and I are talking about. Yeah. Besides the relapse, the lying and the deception also increased the shame for me. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't want to lie to your wife. I don't want to lie to mine either. Yeah, exactly. And and I this is what the addictive brain does. Mm -hmm. I tend to think about it in terms of brain function just because I, I think uh, the brain is kind of our seat of conscious awareness, including... Mm -hmm. Uh, our conscience, yeah. and when that's offline, we can do things that really violate our conscience. And when we come back online with our frontal cortex, we can feel awful about it. So you're absolutely right. Thank you for sharing this participant. It's it's not as if the the relapse wasn't bad enough in terms of this cycle. It's mm -hmm. the lying and the deception on top of that. And uh, virtually all of us, there are some exceptions to this, but virtually all of us are not ultimately cool with lying. Yeah, it comes back and bites us. So just to continue on, so we're talking about a catch-22. I hope you're getting a flavor for it. We're talking about it right now. Yeah. Is that uh, you, yeah, I'm damned if I do. I'm damned if I, if I, it, none of us can barbecue in our own cortisol. I can't tolerate that level of stress. Right. And so I'm damned by that. And then if I turn towards uh, what one author calls tension-reducing behaviors. I can mm. drink alcohol. We can do whatever, any behavior you can think of. We can do that to reduce the tension related mm. to the stress response. And when I do something that helps reduce that, it actually increases it. Mm. Temporarily reduces it. Right. You know, knocks it out temporarily. But soon enough, in come the, uh, the demons of self-doubt and judgment and so on. So that's the catch-22 we're talking about. So let me ask you all a question, and Odie and me here. Mm -hmm. This addiction business is not cool. <laughs> How do we put addiction on notice? That is, what can we do to get a point of leverage or traction underneath addiction? I like very much what Odie said earlier. It starts with being honest with ourselves and then finding trustworthy souls that we can be honest with. I think that's a key, mm -hmm. but that's not enough. In fact, let me make an assertion here. My own view is that addiction takes out the best and the brightest. Mm -hmm. So I assume when I'm sitting in a room of 25 young men and women, that many of these people, I'm not assuming all of them, but many of these people have extraordinary potential and it's been stymied by their addiction. Mm. The family that wrote me last night from, from the East Coast and is considering having their son uh, come for treatment at the center where I work, I've met with this uh, man once and it's clear to me he's had a long-term addiction and it's clear to me that he's got oodles of intelligence and a lot of creativity, mm -hmm. even despite that. And I'm not just saying that. It's just like it's painful to see somebody mm -hmm. that has so much potential. I remember being in high school and I was on the basketball team. We had a basketball player. I'm not going to name him because he's probably still alive. He might not be alive. <laughs> he was the most gifted basketball player of anybody out there. Yeah. And he was also the most drug addicted. Man. We had a basketball team that was loaded with uh, drug uh, use and I was the innocent. I was just wanting to win games. This guy was so good. He was such a smooth basketball player, very talented, and he would come to the games high. Yeah. He did a combination of smoking weed before games and also dropping second all reds, which is a downer. Mm. So, do you can you imagine what it's like to be running down the court if you're on a sedative like this? It's like <laughs> slow motion, yeah. really pissed me off that he would do that. Yeah. And it made it worse for me because he was so damn talented as a basketball player. Yeah. To make matters worse, I'm a lifelong drummer. I played music all my life. This guy had picked up a guitar. He could play guitar like Jimi Hendrix and it was almost <laughs> like natural for him to do that. It was like such a crazy waste of talent. 
And, no. you know, all these years later, I assume that probably he was growing up in an environment that was chaotic and crazy yeah. that led him to need to do that. So mm-hmm. I don't ultimately judge him, but it makes me sick to the stomach to think of the potential that he had to offer as an athlete and as an artist. Right. And both of those were stymied. So I think of that when I sit with addicts who uh, are struggling uh, in the early stages of recovery. Many of them, it takes getting back to what one psychiatrist calls the birthday brain, getting back to a baseline mm-hmm. of where you have access to all this, this, this of your creativity. Right. I assume that. And even if, even if I'm talking to a group of people that maybe aren't the brightest or aren't the best, I at least think of them as wanting to be the best and brightest they can be. Mm-hmm. And that means then we don't have to compare anymore. You may be mm-hmm. smarter than me. It doesn't really matter. I want you to access your intelligence fully. Mm-hmm. And I want to be able to access mine. I want you to help me to do that. And, and in that sense, I want, I, I want you to be the best that you can be. And the mm-hmm. same for me. And addiction fouls that up massively. Yeah. The Eastern traditions have a, a, a phrase where they say, uh, what's your original face before you were born, Odie? What was your original face before you were born, Bob? What was your original face before you were born, Franz? What was your original face before you were born, Austin? And all they mean by that is, what were you born to be? And the idea, it's almost like of destiny. It gets picked up in the Judeo-Christian heritage by, for example, uh, the image of God, like the image of God in you. So there's different terminology for this. I like this idea of your original face before you were born. Mm -hmm. So this morning as I was getting ready to go to the group, it occurred to me, I'm going to ask the group, and I introduced it to the group. I'm going to ask the group something I've never asked a group before. I said, I came in today and I said, I want each one of you to imagine when you were six years old. I thought I'm not going to say when you were younger, I want to pick six. Hmm. And I don't know why I just picked six. I think I said, it's where many of you started first grade or thereabouts. And you can probably remember when you were six. Some of you won't, but many of you will. Most of you will. Can you tell me what you saw as a six-year-old? Can you tell me what you imagined for your life? What was your life like? I know that you wouldn't have had these terms for it, but can you even kind of feel into what that six-year-old Odie or Bob had as potential as they were moving into the world as a six-year-old? And I wasn't sure that this would fail or succeed. I wasn't sure. (laughs) I was really relieved by the fact that people just didn't get up and walk out. (laughs) And what people started sharing, it was really touching to me, Odie. They said, I was innocent. Another person said, "Um, I just wanted to play. Another person said, I was open to the world. Another person said, I just wanted to play with Play-Doh. <laughs> I thought that was the best response. <laughs> it's like a kid of six years old, hmm. all other things being equal, they just want to focus on, am I going to play with bright green hmm. or bright pink Play-Doh today? Yeah. I love the smell of it, the feel of it. <laughs> and so one person said, life was just less complicated. Yeah. I said, some of you in this room, may have been so traumatized by the time you were six that you didn't experience what other people are talking about. Mm. The world was no longer uncomplicated. And somebody asked me, they said, "Is it? you mean at age six you can have that knocked out of you? And I said, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's where the woman that I mentioned earlier shared her experience at age, uh, age five, which I won't share the specifics of it. She shared, and I really blessed her for this, she shared an experience she had at age five that knocked out all innocence for her. Mm. And so there's no guarantees. Uh, it's very possible I can be a five or six-year-old and be profoundly depressed, mm. be um, completely cut off from my feelings, yeah. be so uh, anxious that I'm crawling out of my skin. There's no birthright, no guarantee of that. But most of the people in the room could remember a time pre-addiction where there was this kind of enthusiasm for life. Yeah. One person said, but passion, I was passionate. You know, so. 
So I want to ask our viewers today, can you remember when you were six years old or a time, I, I pick six to start with. Can you remember a time that was early, early enough in your life that you still have memory of it, kind of a felt sense of it? And will you take a moment right now to write down in a sentence or two or three what your original face was when you were six? <laughs> If you're willing to share, it'd be good. I'll, I'll do the same. Okay. Okay. There's more you can write. You can follow up uh, today after our meeting by further journaling, and you're welcome to share it with me after our meeting today. Um, Odie, you want to? Do you want to share some first thoughts? Do you mind? Not at all. Thank you. Um, so I wrote down, and that's a really good exercise, by the way. Thank I you. I've never done it before today. Yeah, I'm, I glad, think I'm glad. It's glad. interesting to to kind of think back that far, if you can, and yeah. uh, mm -hmm. just really think, like, wait, what was going on around that time? You know, you, I, I should mention to you, the woman that I talked about said she couldn't remember when she was six. Hmm. And so I looked at her and I said, did something happen before that? And she said, yeah, this happened at age five. Oh. And so it's quite possible that significant trauma can erase memory. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they call it, uh, uh, I can't even remember what they call it now. It's proactive inhibition. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it erases the future, erases the future in terms of memory. So that you can remember your six mm -hmm. is a good thing. And it's not, a, that's not a universal. Okay. Mm -hmm. So is that a way to like suppress uh -huh. Certain memories. Is yeah, there's so much pain that the the the, uh, the 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 center of our fear response is in the is a little almond-shaped organ in the brain mm. called the amygdala. Amygdala is the Latin word for almond, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's our, our brain routes safety and fear through mm -hmm. that. It's the seat of our emotional reactions that are about self-protection, gotcha. and it's right adjacent to the another part of the brain, part of the brain that's in the center of the brain, the hippocampus, and the hippocampus is the center of memory, mm -hmm. and so the one really affects the other. This, for example, is why PTSD happens, mm -hmm. is you'll have people that are traumatized. Let's say uh, a combat soldier is traumatized by bombs going off, comes back to the United States, is no longer deployed, hears a car backfire, and immediately is in a traumatized state, mm. is that memory is sealed in so closely. The trauma is right there. The memory is sealed in. And so anything that even smells like that will stir us a, a response. Mm. And so you'll get in that case, a kind of sensitization. Anything that's like that will stir it up. Mm. The reverse is that you'll get a desensitization where you just can't remember anything. Mm. And I certainly have had clients and known individuals that have vast portions of their childhood not remembered. And that is statistically unusual. And it's virtually never without adequate reason. You just know that something awful happened, right. that a memory had to get erased. So mm -hmm. it just has to do with the proximity of those brain centers. And it really is self-protection. It's almost like the brain goes into psychic shock. Mm -hmm. You know, if you get stabbed, your body will go into shock, God right. willing. <laughs> if, you get, if, you get, if you get traumatized psychologically, the body goes into a kind of psychic shock. Mm -hmm. And it will numb out around that. Mm -hmm. And if that fails, you can always turn to addictions. And, and when I speak to a group of addicts, all of us know about that is that the, the number one reason most people will talk about turning to addiction to substance is to numb out. Mm. It's anesthesia. We right. seek self-medication. There are other reasons, but that's a primary reason. Mm. And it's all about the fact that our repression isn't working. And right. so traumatic stuff is coming up, for example, in relationships. All of a sudden you're losing it with your intimate other. Mm. You can't control it and you want to chill. And so you find a way to do that with alcohol or other drugs. Mm. Or whatever. So, mm. anyway, so please continue. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
So I jotted down here uh, when I was six, um, my parents, uh, they'd take time off of work mm -hmm. and we would hop in a car, all my uh, siblings, so uh, two sisters, one brother, so all six of us would hop in a car, travel like a week uh, to mm -hmm. go to Mexico because right. our uh, all of our family pretty much is down there. Right. So just having that memory just uh loving going on those road trips that were like a week and also uh dreaming of being an actor slash uh director after watching um arnold schwarzenegger movies which uh, i wasn't supposed to at the time but oh interesting you <laughs> snuck those in yeah very cool and that's age six yeah see how those get remembered for a lifetime yeah yeah very cool thank you mm-hmm it's wonderful if you can remember those, and I'm assuming you have a positive association with them. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you got shamed for watching Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. There could be the possibility of trauma around that. I'm not saying mm -hmm. there was. They no. would foul that memory up. Or imagine that your family, you go, you, you drive with six family members to Mexico. Mm -hmm. Imagine that some kind of traumatic experience happened, for example, with your parents, mm -hmm. whether they abused you or... Or maybe, you know, an accident, God forbid, happened or something. Mm. That stuff could get fouled up. And so it wouldn't be registered as positive memory. It might not, yeah. not even be remembered. Yeah. But these are memories, yeah. Mm. Uh, for me, I can remember at age six because I was in first grade. I was in trouble most of first grade. <laughs> I was in trouble. I was living in a very chaotic home environment. And I literally wasn't allowed to go to recess at some point. I had mm. to go sit in the principal's office every recess because I always got in fights. And so the bad mm. news is I was in fights. So by the time I was six, things were already not going well. Right. There were a couple of things that were going well that I think of. One is I was very curious in class. I loved learning stuff. And, mm. that, and, and that was in place. That wasn't shut down. Mm. And the other thing is I certainly loved girls. <laughs> <laughs> my first girlfriend was Cheryl Russian. And uh, uh, my Hi, dad... Cheryl. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, we lived in a little small town in Southern Oregon. My dad was the, was the only doctor for two counties. Right. And I would walk from school every day with Cheryl. I don't think we held hands, but we'd walk together. And we'd walk, because I would walk to my dad's office and get picked up by my mom. And Cheryl would walk with me. And I got to go to Dee's Cafe and buy her, buy her an ice cream cone, a vanilla ice cream cone. It was a, a nickel. And so I remember oh. walking with Cheryl. And I remember having a lump in my throat in first grade about Cheryl. And so, look, I remember her name. Yeah, Is that crazy? Wow. Yeah, I can remember what crazy. she looked like. I can remember how much we enjoyed those ice creams. <laughs> we never kissed or anything. We just, right. that was what we did. And so there were some things that were really good there. There yeah. were some things that were already indications that Bobby's in trouble. Because what first grader spends all of first grade in the principal's <laughs> office? That's not really a good sign. So. She probably liked you because you were a bad boy, too. <laughs> <laughs> Does it start that young? <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> I can, I can picture you with small with a leather jacket. Oh, yeah. And just yeah. getting into fight. <laughs> I have to tell you a story, Odie. I came back to this small town many years later. In fact, I was in graduate school, so probably 20 years later. Mm -hmm. I came back to this small town, and I asked about my best friend. His first name was Tony. Mm -hmm. And I was downtown, and I, was, I, I went to Dee's Cafe, and I asked people, and they said, Oh, Tony. They said, You don't know about Tony? And I said, No. They said, No, he, he got sent to state prison. And I know that Tony was my best friend in first grade. Mm -hmm. And so... That is easily my fate, you know. Right. Tony and I were, were accomplices, and we were always in trouble. Tony, by the way, never got to go to recesses either, the two of us. And yeah. he was my best friend. Yeah. And it, it, it hits me even right now sharing that, is that at whatever age we get thrown off course, I'm not by nature a violent or aggressive person, mm. but whatever was going on, I was acting it out, obviously. Yeah. 
and I had a lot of love in my heart, not just for Cheryl Rush and for, for kids generally. And I had a lot of curiosity. There was a fair bit of intelligence, at least in potential. Right. But it was overwhelmed by the aggression, mm -hmm. by, the, by the, the reactivity. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because mm -hmm. uh, you mentioning that reminded me that um, there was always, there was this, uh, this kid in our school that was a popular kid. Mm -hmm. And um, I always used to think that, wow, you know, I wish I was I was mm -hmm. like him, like popularity. And uh, once mm -hmm. high school was over and whatnot, um, I think it was a couple of years after, or maybe more, he actually he passed away in a car accident mm -hmm. from uh, he was drinking and driving with a, mm -hmm. and the people in the car with him were other people from school as well. Mm -hmm. So just mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. seeing that and knowing like, okay, well, if you're on that path, you know, mm -hmm just where you could possibly have possibly ended up as well yeah. so yeah it's very very humbling isn't it yeah yeah i'm sorry to hear that we're going to wrap up here in the next few minutes and i want to summarize some things earlier when i looked at Odie and i said this isn't really who you are when we were talking about addiction hmm. and i was saying that about myself this isn't really who i am this is the way that we mean it Hmm. is who that you are at age six in terms of your potential and who you are right now if you have full access to your your, your brain and your spirit and your soul, however you understand all of that, that's who you really are. And you can get distracted and I get distracted. Any of us can get distracted by, by uh, like faulty blueprints. Right. I had some faulty blueprints on human interaction very early on. Mm -hmm. I thought beating up people was cool. And I learned over time that that's really not cool. And I had to find a few other ways to uh, figure this out. It took a long time to do that. But it's in a sense, it's like looking at that original face as looking at who we really are. And it's finding a basis that's deeper than addiction. If we're talking about addiction or we're talking about shame, mm -hmm. shame would erase your potential. It would erase my potential. Mm -hmm. It makes us defective. It makes us broken. Mm -hmm. It makes us hopeless. And what we're trying to do is restore hope here. One of the ways that I do that in the context of addiction, the next slide talks about this. How do we externalize the enemy? In other words, if I look at you and you share with me about your addictive behaviors and I do the same with you, is there a way that we can hear each other and not assume that this encapsulates who you are? Mm -hmm. In fact, it's a it encapsulates kind of like who you're not. Right. And the same for me is that mm -hmm. I wasn't born to be an addict. You weren't born to be an addict. Right. And all of us have addictive behaviors of some form or another. And it's just owning up to that. And the only way we can own up to that, if you know, and if, and if I know, if you know that I know, that I don't look at you as being um, summarized mm. by any of your behaviors. Mm. And it requires, when I say externalizing, it means that whatever you did, let's look at it objectively. And that's one of my goals about bringing in, talking about the addictive brain. Here's what addiction does to the brain. The goal is to externalize it because I don't mix that up. I don't mix the addictive brain up with who you are, Odie. Mm. And I don't want you to do that with me. And the fact of the matter is shame gets us really mixed up about that. Hmm. It assumes that I am guilty as charged and I should be banished and hmm. I should feel awful about myself. Hmm. And that's the end of the road as we talked about it. Good information liberates. And we're hmm. trying to provide some good information in this series. And shame paralyzes, like what we're talking about with the, the, the freeze response, like hmm. the basketball image. Yeah. And so anything that I can do in the direction of externalizing addiction and looking at it objectively, that means including scientifically, mm -hmm. that's a step in the direction of being able to separate myself from it so that I can then begin to address it. You can't address something if you don't recognize you have it. Mm. And you can't address it if you reduce yourself to being nothing but it. Mm. Yeah. If I don't know I have an addiction, that's a problem. 
And if I see myself as nothing but my addiction, that's a problem as well. So our goal here is to silence the shame. Today we talked about the way out of shame and addiction. I should have called it like a beginning way out of shame and addiction because we're going to be looking at this in different forms for the remainder of this series. We're just coming at this from different angles. Mm -hmm. Today's is, is one angle where we're looking at shame in terms of looking at shame the, the vicious cycle it creates, what we call the catch-22, mm -hmm. and also looking at shame, what it does to your original self, who mm -hmm. you really are, and to me. Right. I'd like us to get so pissed off about shame that we actually begin to want to wage war with it. It's really <laughs> not okay that shame takes away your birthright. Mm -hmm. It's not okay that it takes mine away, and that's what shame will do. Shame will make me feel bad. I will uh, utilize addictive behavior, and then shame will remind me how bad I should feel about having used addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. And so it's a self-perpetuating self cycle. Right. Next week, what we're going to be doing is looking at getting clear on the various disguises of shame and addiction. Mm. I really appreciate you being here today, and we've talked openly about shame. The yes. fact of the matter is, much of our shame is like an iceberg. You know, we're 10% of it's above water. Much of our shame goes uh, uh, unawares to ourselves. And mm. so uh, my shame may manifest as my being aggressive towards you. My shame manif may manifest as depression. My shame may manifest as grandiosity. I'm going to mm. show off to you. Right. And underneath is a fragile sense of self. And so mm. we'll be looking at various disguises of shame, which is another way of saying we'll be looking at various uh, disguises for addiction. There are certain addictions in our society, like I'll talk about masturbation and porn. Mm -hmm. As a man growing up, I've had any number of clients and uh, in various settings, I've been in groups and it's like, what's the problem with that? All guys do that. Right. And there, there's a way that that's true, but just because everybody does it doesn't mean it's okay for yeah. me or for you. Mm -hmm. It depends on the individual. I don't have some kind of a judgment for other all humankind around masturbation or, or porn. Mm. But when it serves as an antidote function to something that wants to be addressed, whether it's your shame or it makes it worse or my shame, that's a problem. Mm. I don't assume that drinking alcohol is bad. Mm. I think if I'm doing it obviously for self-medication to avoid other feelings, that's problematic. Right. That's why when I drink, I drink alcoholically. I drink addictively. 90% mm. of people don't. I'm the 10% that do. Mm. That's a problem that needs to be addressed. So I love our being able to bring out things that are shameful, which are typically secreted away into right. the open. And we're going to continue that next week. We're going uh, to look at the other 90% of the iceberg next week. That's good. Do you have any final comments or questions? How's this been for you? Uh, this has been awesome. Um, <laughs> really glad that we were able to do this. And um, uh, it's very interesting to to be here with an expert and mm -hmm. uh, be able to be open and uh, yeah. talk about our past, well, my past. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank issues you. as well. And um, knowing the techn technical side of it and mm -hmm. uh, practical yeah. things that, you know, people can do and... Yeah. Um, a lot of what you have said has been very vital to to me being uh, sober on that end. So thank you, um, thank you, thank you for saying that. It looks like we have. Uh... Yeah, you're welcome. Okay. I should say this. You use the word technical. Odie is part of the technical team in terms of our production team here in the studio. And so he's a man of many hats. I'm going to call him Odie slash Arnie from now on. No, you're br you're brilliant in terms of your presence here. 
I'd be very interested in feedback from our audience about today's presentation because it's different in form than virtually all of our others. We had one interview some some months ago, but I really value your presence. And I wasn't I wasn't had no claim on how it would go. Your transparency is really a relief to me. So I really bless you for that. Thank it's you. not easy to do this in any form, much less doing it on on film. So sure. you guys be honoring of what Odie shared today, or I'll come hunt you down. You hear me? <laughs> okay. Thank you guys. There's one final comment that came up uh, here. This person says, I need to stop complaining about how people behave and stop making my addicted husband as my business. Instead, I must focus on myself for my own happiness for him to realize the impact of his illness. I really appreciate that. There's this idea in psychology of projection where I'll project my shadow onto you or you'll project it onto me. Mm. You don't have a problem. It's Bob that has a problem or vice versa. Mm. And so one of the keys for our own well-being is to do what one author calls withdrawing the projection. And she talks about it this way. It's like... A fishing line, bringing a fishing rod, bringing in the line, so that you withdraw the projection onto the other person and and begin to look at ourselves. And so, to whatever extent we can work on this, I love this in the twelve step programs. There's AA for individuals who are, who are wanting to heal from addiction to alcohol. There's also Al-Anon, which is family members. And the goal of Al-Anon is not to fix your, in this case, husband or partner. It's to it's to attend to yourself. We actually call it cleaning your side of the street. And that's the most important gift that we can give to our loved ones mm -hmm. is make sure that we're not projecting stuff onto them, make sure that we're owning our own shadow the mm -hmm. way you have today yeah. and keeping that straight. So that I, I totally agree with you. Thank you. It's hard to do. That's why support groups, I believe, like Al-Anon are important because you're with people that are struggling with how do I stop enabling my loved one? How do I stop badgering my loved one? How do I find happiness myself in, in hopes that my taking my loved one off the hot seat will provide some room for him or her to breathe? So mm -hmm. I really support that. Somebody else has written in, bring shame out into the open is a way to silence it. And it's a question mark and the answer is yes. So I'm going to remove the question mark and put an exclamation point is that shame wants to hide away. It wants to hide away. And as soon as we can out ourselves, and it requires safety, mm. requires safety. We're, we're in a safe environment here and we're trusting you guys to hold this sacredly is that that's one of the most powerful things I can do. It's one of the, the strongest healing aspects of any of the self-help groups because all of them, the expectation is you talk about the gnarliest stuff you've ever done. Yeah. So what you shared today is common currency in, in a self-help group. And, it, and the idea there is if I can open myself and share it with you and you can do the same thing without judgment, is that over time I can get, begin to internalize you're not judging me and not judge myself. And mm -hmm. so absolutely, bring out into the open is the best way to silence it. And Austin has had three exclamation points. <laughs> I want to thank you guys for joining. One exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> I want to also re refer you back to uh, uh, some resources here. We've got we've got uh, archived videos now in this series. We're this is the 25th of a series. We've been doing this for half a year, gentlemen. Blessings, Franz and, and uh, Austin. Thank you guys. So we've got a repository of archived material. You have today's podcast. Do us a favor and share what you saw today with friends. Share it with loved ones. Review it yourself. It's for the good of us because the more. Um, the more positive attention we can have, it fuels the fire in terms of our being able to continue this series. So I really, 
I uh, really plead with you, ask you, cajole you, torture you to be able to do this. Okay, whatever it takes to get you to pass this around. Really appreciate it. Also want to encourage you to stay in dialogue with me. If you have comments you want to make to Odie, you can make it through Ask an Addiction Specialist. You can write to me you, uh, and I'll let Odie know. You can write to me at uh, www.drbobweathers.com. There's a section there where you can contact me. Austin is actually helping me right now with my website to make it more effective. And you also can go to beginningstreatmentcenters.com for more information and as well as to see these archives, as well as they're available on YouTube. And you can write in the comment section on YouTube. What did I forget, Austin? Covered it all. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you all. Blessings to you. We will come back next week and we'll keep working on kicking the butt of shame. Thank you. Blessings. Take care. Thanks. Thank you, Odie. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me.